Again, we'll be reading Acts 18, 18 through 19.7, and you will find that beginning on page 927 in your pew Bible. Listen now to the Word of God. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cantria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if the Lord wills, or if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus." though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the, ways, or the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, "'Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?' And they said, "'No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit.' And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism, excuse me, of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So reads the Word of God. Here at Grace Church of DuPage, we pay pretty close attention to the clarity and the precision of doctrinal and theological beliefs. Have you noticed that as you've been here? We've just been looking through our Constitution and Doctrinal Statement again, 60 pages of it, Constitution, Doctrinal Statement, Position Papers. We pay pretty close attention to the clarity and precision of our doctrinal and theological beliefs. Just recently, you've seen the attentiveness and the care that we've given to our position papers on corporate worship and on special creation, just combing through those expressions and descriptions to make sure they communicate our understanding 
of Scripture as thoroughly and as accurately as possible. We give much attention to this, much focus. Some might wonder, what difference does it all make? Why do we do that? If we know that Jesus died for our sins, isn't that enough? Answer, surely our trust in Jesus' death on the cross as God's solution for our sin that has severed us from our relationship with him, surely our trust in Jesus' death on the cross is enough to reconcile us to God. A child can hear and believe and be saved eternally. But God has communicated so much more than just that to us in his word. And it's a worthy pursuit to to press hard into his word, to understand all of that which he has written to us as well, as fully, as deeply as we are able. God has given us the scriptures. He has written to us the things that he wants us to know concerning himself. And as Paul and the others were preaching the gospel on the streets of Jerusalem and then increasingly throughout to the, to the very ends of the earth, They were continually comparing it to the Old Testament revelation, tying off threads and themes that have been begun there, the fulfillment of promises that were mentioned there. As we press hard and deep into the Word of God, we grow strong in our understanding of these truths that save us, these truths that come down to such a simple bottom line as trust Christ and be saved. Well, we will see a bit of the difference that this makes, this pressing into an understanding of the Word of God. We'll see a bit of the difference it makes as we move into our text today. Different forms of unusual beliefs, different forms of misbeliefs are present in this passage as the gospel is spreading here at this stage of Paul's ministry. Different forms of misbelief and unbelief and distorted belief are present here. And these, these three paragraphs, and pressing into them a bit, will help us see the importance of the things that we're talking about. This brief little drama here unfolds in three scenes. You can see them right there on your page, and they are listed here in your bulletin. Scene one is Paul finishing his second journey in verses 18 through 22. And we'll actually include verse 23 there, although it goes in the text a little bit better with with chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Scene 2 is the interlude. While Paul is away, he finishes his second journey. He goes back uh, east for a while and then comes back to Ephesus. And in the intervening period, the interlude, Priscilla and Aquila have their encounter with Apollos, chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. And then finally, in the first seven verses of chapter 9, Paul begins his third missionary journey. He actually began it in verse 23, and then in chapter 19, verse 1, lands in Ephesus, which is the centerpiece, the focal point of his third journey. So that's the outline we'll follow this morning. Let's move through that together. Appreciate what's going on in this story and then understand some of what is the uh, theological, biblical anchoring of it the soil in which it is rooted, and the basis of the actions of Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. 
So first, scene one, Paul finishes his second journey here in verses 18 through 22. We just read it, so we won't read it, read it again, but we can see here in verse 18 that it was many days after the decision of Gallio, that's the point of reference, we finished with that just last Sunday in chapter 18, verse 17. It was many days after the decision of Gallio, identifying Christianity with Judaism, making it an approved religion within the province of Achaia, big decision with far-reaching implications. It was many days after this that Paul's 18 months of stay in Corinth came to an end. We saw that he stayed there that length of time back in verse 11 of this same chapter 18. Well, that 18 months came to an end. He left there, and he left with his new friends, Priscilla and Aquila, and he was heading back home to Syria, we see in verse 18. But before setting sail, probably from Kentria, though, he got a haircut, which is an important detail in a travel log. Um, others of us might need one soon. Paul got a haircut, but for a different reason. He got a haircut probably because he was under a vow. In fact, we know that because we're told that right here. What we don't know is what kind of vow it was, but almost certainly it was a Nazarite vow. This detail makes that point almost certain, the fact that he got his hair cut, because that's what we hear about a characteristic of the Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. The first 21 verses of that chapter are where that particular type of vow is set up. That that was a, a vow for Samson. It was a vow for John the Baptist. You weren't supposed to have alcoholic beverage. You weren't supposed to cut your hair. And at the end of the vow, you did cut your hair. And that's part of what's being talked about here. Jews made vows to God either in thankfulness for past blessings, and Paul surely could have done that. We just read last week about his safekeeping there in Corinth in response to the very promise of God given to him in a vision. Or they could participate in a vow as part of a petition for future blessing, like like safekeeping on a coming journey, we might say. And Paul is just heading off uh, in the direction of of Antioch, so we know he's heading off on a journey. For Paul, then, it really could have been either one of these two. We know that he had much to be thankful for there in Corinth, so it could easily have been related to that. But we also know that once his head was shaved to end the vow, the hair was to be burned along with other sacrifices as a symbol of self-offering to God. So it wasn't just a matter of letting your hair grow, then cutting it. The hair itself became part of the offering, part of the symbol of your own participation in the offering, part of the symbol of self-offering to God. And the intent was that this offering would then be made in the temple at Jerusalem. That was part of the practice. Although if a vow was completed far away from Jerusalem the hair could still be brought there and burned. Some of the different students of history have told us about this particular vow. Plus, given some of the hostilities that we already know were brewing between Paul and the Jews, it might have been good for him to participate in a vow of this sort before heading back to Jerusalem. That's one of the things that suggests it might have been petition for future blessing that had him participating in this vow. It would have been good for the Jews to see his shaved head when he arrived back in Jerusalem. They would know that he had just completed a vow. 
Also, if this kind of vow was taken by Paul, one commentator wrote, it implied that he intended to visit Jerusalem. And after a brief stint in Ephesus that we read about here where he reasoned in the synagogue and where he left Priscilla and Aquila, it appears as though he did just that, returned to Jerusalem. There are several pointers in the text then that suggest he's preparing for a trip back to Jerusalem before he returns to Antioch. Where do we see that? Look at verse 22. When he landed at Caesarea, there on the western coast of Judea, of that region, he went up and greeted the church. That's all that's stated there. But that language usually describes the ascent up to Jerusalem. It was an upward journey, even though it was south and east from Caesarea. And then, verse 22 says, and then went down to Antioch, which actually is back north to ascending church. But again, down in elevation, it appears as though that's exactly what Paul did. He went to Jerusalem, completed this vow, and then returned to the church at Antioch. Very little detail being given here by Luke, but really what we see him doing is rushing on from the second missionary journey completing, and it's finished now as Paul arrives back in Antioch, and then it starts again almost immediately. Verse 23, after spending some time there, how long? We don't know. He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. So he'd finished his vow, gone to Jerusalem, went back home and took off sometime evidently quite soon afterward. After a brief stay, Paul headed right back off on his third journey and at the beginning then retracing the steps of his second journey early on, going back through that inland route north and west through Galatia and Phrygia And then without much more detail there even of how he found those churches and whether they were strengthened by his visit, how they were doing, we just see him landing almost immediately in Ephesus, chapter 19, verse 1. Meaning that this time when he passed through Galatia and Phrygia, the Holy Spirit allowed him to enter Asia. Interesting, the last time, that's where he wanted to go. Probably Ephesus was a target. But the Holy Spirit, if you remember from chapter 16, verse 6, said, no, Paul, that's not where you're going. And they were waiting and listening. And then the Macedonian call came, and they went up to Philippi and to Thessalonica and to Berea. This time, he goes to Asia. And from the way Luke is telling the story, he wants to get us to Ephesus in order to see how this gospel continued to progress. All of the details of finishing his journey and starting his next one are collapsed into just a few words, and we get to Ephesus. Thus, the title of our message this morning, and Paul came to Ephesus. Those are words taken actually directly from the page. In the meantime, though, while he was away, we have seen two here, Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos in verses 24 to 28. So in the meantime, while he was gone, much had happened in Ephesus since he reasoned with the Jews there and they asked him to stay for a longer period. Look at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. He was competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He'd been instructed in the gospel although we don't know how or by whom. 
we do know that the gospel came to that influential city of Alexandria, that location, the largest known library in the world at that time. We do know the gospel came there early on, but the details of that story up through the late second century are really lost to us as history students. We don't know how the gospel arrived in and advanced in Alexandria, but we can see part of the fruit of it in this eloquent and well-educated man, Apollos, coming from that city to the city of Ephesus. And recorded here in verse 25, Luke says, and being fervent in spirit, I love that. If you dig into that word fervent a little bit, you get boiling over or boiling hot. So being boiling hot in spirit. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard a, a, an eloquent, well-educated man who was just boiling over with the gospel? Love to have heard Apollos preach and teach evidently quite compelling. It could almost have become a stumbling block in Corinth as you hear Paul referring to his gifting there. But being boiling hot in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately, Luke records, the things concerning Jesus. Although, for some unknown reason, which is also unexplained, He knew only the baptism of John, a strange thing since he had been instructed in the Scriptures. But it's a reminder of the fact that these gospel truths weren't spreading equally and evenly and in in proper proportion to one another everywhere, follow up for the clarification of the Word of God for the clarification of the gospel, for the defense of gospel truths and details was important and necessary going all the way back to the first century church. Apollos arrives in Ephesus and is boiling over with fervency for the gospel. And yet he doesn't even know the baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He wasn't acquainted with the baptism of Jesus commanded in the Great Commission. The one Peter preached on the day of Pentecost saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Apollos knew only the baptism of John. He knew only this baptism of repentance, this this sign of preparation for the coming Messiah, this sign of confession, of not having lived according to the covenant stipulations, but recognizing that the promised deliverer was coming, wanting to be in line with him, wanting to be prepared, and therefore under the preaching of John receiving his baptism which was a repentance of preparation for the one who was to come, a very different baptism than the baptism of Jesus. Paul would soon explain that. We get one sentence on it, verse 4 in chapter 19. He would explain it to the 12 that he talked to there, but the whole point was preparing for the coming of Messiah, the Messiah who was Jesus as we see from Apollos' own teaching in verse 28. So here's where we begin to see the importance, the importance of right doctrine. We start to see the impact of the absence of it. We see the impact of the lack and what that can leave 
present in the preaching of the gospel. Verse 26, Apollos began to speak boldly with his eloquence and his fervency in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they discerned that something was wrong. They discerned that something was missing. This well-schooled, eloquent man proclaiming the gospel in which he had been instructed was missing something. It was evident to these two hearers. So they took him aside. They took him home. They, they, they took him away from the crowd, and in private they talked to him and explained to him, Luke records, the way of God more accurately. They took him on to the next step. They talked to him about baptism in the name of the Trinity. Perhaps they instructed him in a way that Paul would later write to the Roman church in chapter 6 of that letter, verses 1 through 4, talking about the symbolism of dying and being raised with Christ that come with this baptism in the name of Jesus, or really from the Great Commission in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They discipled him in private. They didn't ignore the incomplete or inaccurate or somehow distorted message he was preaching just because he preached it with boiling hot passion and persuasiveness. He still needed to be corrected in what he was saying. They brought him along in the faith and the results were immediate and impressive For some reason, again, unexplained, he wanted then to go to Achaia. He wanted to go to Corinth. He wanted to go back to that region that Paul had just left. And the other Christians there in Ephesus, including, it would appear, Priscilla and Aquila, thought this was a great idea, verse 27. So Apollos traveled there and engaged the Jews in rigorous public debate, we read in verse 28, now proving that the Messiah was, in fact, Jesus, and having the full and tested gospel available to him as he spoke and as he preached. He made quite an impact in Corinth, as we've already mentioned, and as can be seen from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul wrote more to the Corinthians than to any other church in the New Testament, and he mentions Apollo several times, especially in that first letter, And he even says specifically, I planted there in Corinth, Apollos watered, but God brought the increase. Of all of the others who would do some work in Corinth, Apollos stood out in that way for Paul. We also know Peter did some work there because part of what they were facing in Corinth was this division behind different influential leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or Peter. I follow Christ. Apollos stood alongside the Apostle Paul there in Corinth, proclaiming the clear and pure gospel and discipling the church. He had a great impact there, Luke records, even right here. And by the time Paul got back to Ephesus, scene three, Apollos was already gone. So they didn't crisscross here, it wouldn't appear. But he immediately... Paul did, met a group of about 12 men, we're told, at the close of this paragraph down in verse 7. He immediately met a group of 12 men whom Luke identified as disciples here in verse 1. 
the way you, Luke usually uses this word, disciples, suggests that they were disciples of Jesus, not just disciples of John. And Paul acknowledges that they had believed, verse 2. We point these things out because there are some questions that arise with regard to these guys and with, with regard to their connection, their relationship with Apollos. So apparently they were disciples of Jesus because Luke didn't designate otherwise. When it's left undesignated, Jesus is the suggested referent, disciples of him, and he acknowledges, or Paul does, as he asks them his question, that they had believed, they had believed something, but they were missing the same part of the gospel story as Apollos had been missing. They'd been baptized into John's baptism, verses 3 and 4 here in chapter 19. But these guys were missing more than just that. They were missing a whole lot more. Paul discerned this when he asked here in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Once again, we get a sense like we got when Priscilla and Aquila were listening to Apollos teach in the Ephesian synagogue. Something's Something's not right here. So Paul asked this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now this couldn't really mean that they didn't know that the Holy Spirit even existed. The Old Testament speaks of the Holy Spirit enough for us to know that, that he exists. And, and so did John. As a matter of fact, John said, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. So if they knew the baptism of John, they already knew something of the Holy Spirit. They just didn't know that that promise implicit in John's baptism had been fulfilled. That's what would appear to be the missing piece for them here. That said... Paul is identifying two significant biblical, theological, experiential shortfalls in these people. He's identifying problems with their faith and with their belief. Yet, in response to that, Luke doesn't record that Paul preached the gospel to these 12. All we see in this text is that he said, on hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, in whom evidently they had already believed, verse 2. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying a different story than we read almost any other place in Acts with regard to the sequencing of how someone entered into saving belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So with all of this in front of us, we've got to start asking some questions. How do we make sense of this account, this, this story, this series of scenes? How do we make sense of this without careful, biblical, theological, doctrinal thought that addresses a wide range of questions in each of those categories. How do we process this without asking those questions and clarifying what is actually going on here? 
we can read past this thinking it's history, and it is history. But there's something calling out to us from the page that says, the details here are important. What and how these folks believed is important. It's important to each of us and how we understand the gospel and what we share when we share the gospel and what it means to receive the gospel and what changes it makes within us and how those changes are made evident. It's important. And it was figuring in to what Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos were doing as they spread the gospel, as they preached reconciliation to God and Christ. So how do we make sense of this without careful, biblical, theological, doctrinal thought that addresses a wide range of specific questions? Just some examples. Were these guys converted or not, these 12? Was their belief saving belief or were they still in their sins? How were their circumstances similar to those of Apollos? How do they differ? Why does Luke record that they were baptized but then says nothing about baptism for Apollos? What was the difference? And how do we know that that was the difference? These questions... And many more like them could be asked about this brief, simple section at the end of Paul's second journey and the beginning of his third. And there's much discussion on the answers to these questions. Some, for instance, think neither Apollos nor these 12 were saved before these encounters. Some think both were saved before these encounters. Some think Apollos was saved, but the 12 weren't. And these are all commentators we would respect who draw these different conclusions. And very few, interestingly, very few think there was any connection between these 12 and Apollos, even though they all had the same baptism of John issue. And they had it in the same city where Apollos was already teaching even before Priscilla and Aquila set him straight. We actually don't see a connection there for most who are writing on this passage. Another question, though, why do tongues and prophesying show up again here in Ephesus? Why? After we've not seen them in response to conversion since Cornelius and his family back in chapter 10. And laying on hands to receive the Holy Spirit We haven't seen that since Samaria back in chapter 8. Questions, questions, questions. But this simple little account, this story. We don't have time to track down every single one of these, but in short, let me walk you through my thoughts with regard to some of them, and then we need to talk more about the questions themselves. In short, I think Apollos was a true believer even though he knew only the baptism of John, and I believe this because Luke appears to be saying that he was filled with the Spirit, talking about him being fervent. The Spirit was with Apollos, so it would seem. But I believe the 12 quite possibly weren't saved because the Holy Spirit is the agent of our regeneration, according to Scripture. So if they have no knowledge of or experience with or understanding of the Holy Spirit... 
it would appear as though they had genuine interest in the things of God, maybe a God-fearer or something like Cornelius, but, but that they hadn't really savingly believed. It's possible, although some want to make the case for the fact that they had and just were believing false doctrine. Still, that's where I would personally land there. And I believe the laying on hands and tongues and prophesying, I believe they show up again because Ephesus was such a charged and twisted city spiritually. This was very much like a new frontier. These expressions showed up with the Samaritans and their biblical half-truths. So there needed to be a difference between their existing faith and this new gospel that came. So Pentecost was repeated there. They appeared again with Cornelius, who was a God-fearing Gentile, And remember, the apostles themselves marveled. The gospel is even for the Gentiles. The spirit is even for the Gentiles. Breaking in again to a new frontier, a new system of belief, the Gentiles came to saving faith. And now, here in Ephesus, here in Ephesus that would be a city representative of the uttermost parts of the earth, it's a city that is saturated in dark spiritual power. We'll see that as we move through the text next Sunday, God willing, and see what the experience was of the, the spread of the gospel there in Ephesus. So these supernatural manifestations and these unusual practices like laying on of hands have shown up each time it needs to be proven that the faith being embraced here in this scene is the same faith that was preached on the day of Pentecost. And the same Spirit who was poured out on that day is being received anew here and now. These are identification points tying in the spread of the gospel into these troubled regions, tying it in with what actually happened on the day that the Spirit was given to the church. It's confirmation that this is the same truth, the same gospel, the same salvation, the same spirit. One commentator says, in other words, uh, these guys here in Ephesus experienced a mini Pentecost. Better, Pentecost caught up on them. I'm still quoting. Better still, they were caught up into it as its promised blessings became theirs. They're incorporated in to this gospel and this spirit that is being received as the sovereign gift of God. And is it just coincidence that there are 12 of them? I don't think so. I don't think that's coincidence at all. Might this be the symbolic starting point of the new covenant community here in this dark, pagan city of Ephesus. The church is starting afresh with 12. Might these even have been the Ephesian elders? But this city of Ephesus, which will play such a prominent role throughout the remainder of the New Testament, you know how often Ephesus comes up. 
We've got to hear in, in 18, Paul visits first. In 19, an extended time there. Spent three years there. In 20, he comes back and speaks to the Ephesian elders. Then he writes the letter to the Ephesians. Then he sends Timothy there and writes first and second Timothy to him while he's solving some of the problems there in Ephesus. And it's quite possible, though we know it only from history, that John was in Ephesus. In first, second, and third, John is anchored into this church. And then it's the first of the seven churches of Revelation 2 that Jesus addresses in his letter. Significant church, and it's being established on a solid foundation here as Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila are all being used of God to get the gospel rooted in this place. And might this be the reason, by the way, that Paul wouldn't be allowed to come to Asia on his second journey. It just wasn't time yet. Now it is, and the Spirit is doing his work. How do we decide on all these questions? So many questions tied to Scripture and theology and doctrine and history. How do we decide on all these questions? How do we build all these convictions if we don't press into the truths and the teachings of God's Word and carefully shape our interpretation, our theology, our doctrine according to the Word of God. New workers were being raised up to continue the work of the apostles here. That's something else we see in this brief section. How were they going to be prepared in order to protect the precious truths of the gospel all the way to the very edges? How? in order to guard the good deposit that was being trust, entrusted to them. How? Unless we press into the depths of the teaching of the Word of God. Without clear teaching from God's Word, we can't know whether we're presenting or even believing a clear gospel. Still, hear us today. We only have confidence in the clear, pure gospel because we've pressed into the teachings and truths of God's Word. We can feel unclear about what to teach our own children about the gospel otherwise. We can feel uncertain about how to answer their questions. Tragic. Without clear teaching from God's Word, we don't know how to question someone who professes saving belief but just doesn't really seem to know Jesus. And how many of those do we run into? We don't have a basis for evaluation, a, a confident sense of which truths are more important in the gospel and which truths just aren't that important with regard to the gospel. That lack of confidence with others, assessing their faith, can very soon then begin to backfeed and cause us to begin questioning our own belief. Have we really believed the gospel? Without clear teaching from God's Word, we can't discern why we see supernatural manifestations at some times, but not at others. How much division has that caused in the history of the church? We can't see where they fit and why and how. And therefore, we can't understand where they don't fit. 
without clear teaching from God's Word, we can feel unequipped to participate in conversations at church when we're evaluating our doctrinal statement. Or we can wonder why such statements need to be monitored so carefully and revised so frequently. We don't revise the Scriptures. Why do we revise our doctrinal statement so much? We might even begin to wonder why we listen to so much teaching at church. Why preaching plays such a prominent and dominant role in our church services. And almost certainly we won't have thoughtful questions about the texts we read here, like, like, why were the responses to Apollos and to these 12 so different when it sounds like they struggled with the very same issue? We won't even have questions like that arise when we read because we're not pressing into the truths to understand the Word of God. Without clear teaching from God's Word, very soon we will not even be able to tell the difference between good input and poor input on what God's Word actually says. And when we lose that, losing the clear, pure gospel altogether is just a short step or two away. And my friends, that sounds grandiose, but how many churches do we see around us who have left the Word of God and the gospel behind? Just left it behind. It's inconvenient truth. It divides people. It, 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 it irritates people. We'd be better off just meeting their needs, and pretty soon the gospel disappears. We stop pressing into the Word of God to hear and to understand and to proclaim and to defend. We don't all need to know these truths to equal depth and clarity. God has gifted each of us differently. But we all need to know why it's important to know them. We all need to know why it's important to hold to them. We all need to know why it's important to guard them like the precious treasure that they are, these truths and teachings of the Word of God. These are the tenets of our most holy faith. They are the truths of the gospel that saves us and the teachings of God's Word who provided that salvation to us. They deserve our undivided attention and our unswerving allegiance in this life until the day when we finally see them fully realized right before our very eyes. Do you long for that day? Do you long for that day? Amen. I think we should long for it more deeply than it's suggesting. Do you long for that day? Yes. Do you know what makes you long for that day all the more? Pressing deeply into the truths and the teaching of God's Word. It's not just important to proclaim and defend them. We embrace them as our very life. And it's the means of our understanding of who God is and of what He has done until the day when faith becomes sight 
and we finally enter into his presence and see that one about which the word has said so much. And it's then that we will say to ourselves, oh, I wish that I had pressed all the more deeply to understand the word of God that I might know this indescribable being into whose visible presence I have just been drawn. That I might understand him and know him all the better. Friends, that is chief among our callings in this life, pressing into the word of God to know the one about whom they speak and to hold dearly the very words that we read there and all of the instruction that he gives. Let's pray. Let's thank God for his word. Let's rejoice in this little passage that helps us see why it is so important to understand it and the details of its proclamation. And then let's remember together the life of the one who provided our salvation. Pray with me, would you? And as I pray, musicians and communion servers, please come to the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that it proclaims. We thank you that we are pressed into a deeper appreciation and understanding of all that it says by the very situations, real-life situations and circumstances that are put before us in these few brief verses today. Father, as you have privileged us to be part of a church and a tradition where we're holding these truths deeply and carefully, treasuring them as the very truths of God, church where that is an important and essential part of our identity. We thank you for that. Father, none of us has brought that about. We have just been brought to this place by your sovereign grace, and we thank you for that. Oh, Father, help us to be guardians of the truth in our day. Guardians, not as ones who are retreating into the inner recesses of, of some fortress, but ones who delight in the truth and the power of God's word and therefore love to proclaim it and to spread it far and wide, knowing that the word of God in all of its truth will never return void, knowing that we are sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth. Knowing that the truth sets us free according to its own testimony. Father, help us to proclaim and defend the truths of the gospel and to rejoice in them, understanding what a privilege it is to know God and what a greater privilege it is yet to be known by him. Enable now our remembrance of your son who has reconciled us to yourself at the cost of his life. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, the son of God, Messiah, King, King, 